Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I'm one of the show's hosts. I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're so pleased to have for you this week an interview that we recorded with Kevin Cashman, who is a senior associate with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Uh, They do a lot of work focusing on neoliberalism and uh, economics in the Latin America region, um, examining allegations of electoral fraud, looking at a lot of the policy claims that are made by U.S. think tanks and spread throughout the media. And uh, Mark Weisbrot, who's been a guest on the show before, is um, one of their leading voices at at the think tank who does a lot of work We talked to Kevin about the paper that he was involved in producing called What Happened in Bolivia's 2019 Vote Count. And this paper looked at the election returns and the tally sheets from Bolivia's October 20 elections and examined these allegations that were spread largely due to a preliminary report that was put out by the Organization for American States. This became the kind of foundation that led to the military being able to wage its coup to force Evo Morales from power, and he ultimately fled to Mexico. And so there's a lot for us to get into. We get into details related to Bolivia and the coup. We talked to Kevin about several different aspects, and then after Kevin's interview, uh, we come back in the show to do a discussion about some of the aspects that we were not able to get to with Kevin Cashman. So here's the interview. Why don't we begin by having you set up what was in this report that the Center for Economic and Policy Research put out on the Bolivia election? Sure. So uh, uh, the first thing people need to know is that there are two kinds of of ways of counting the votes. And one of those is this quick count, which caused a lot of confusion. And that's basically a count that is supposed to uh, give you a result on election day so that people know the the vote counting process is proceeding and that uh, the electoral authorities aren't doing uh, anything shady. It's it's a a system that uh, the OAS actually recommends a lot of countries uh, implement. And uh, it's not the official results. The official results usually come later because it's harder to count rural votes and uh, do that in a short time frame. Um, So the OAS on Election Day uh, looked at this quick count. And um, by all the evidence I could find, uh, the electoral authorities did what they had done in in previous elections um, and stopped that preliminary quick count on Election Day. Uh, and so um, this time, the OAS and the opposition uh, framed uh, that stopping of that preliminary count uh, as some kind of uh, implying that there was fraud. So they created this narrative of fraud, um, even though uh, the same process was followed in, in other elections. Uh, and so um, that quickly became the dominant narrative in English language media. Uh, and uh, the electoral authority actually restarted that preliminary vote count to count more uh, as more votes as like a, a percentage of the total. Um, 
But uh, to win in the first round, Morales had to win by more than 10 percentage points. At the time they suspended the count, he was at about 8 percentage points. And then when they restarted it, because they were under intense pressure to restart it, it had grown to just over 10 percentage points. And, you know, that would indicate that he won outright in the first round. Um, And uh, the OAS quickly said that this was not possible. It was not possible to have this uh, gain of two percentage two percentage points for Morales over this time period. Uh, But the paper we did showed that if you understand voting dynamics in Bolivia and that uh, if rural uh, people support Morales uh, by a larger margin and if they uh, the results from where they live are reported later, this trend actually makes sense. Um, So we predicted uh, based on the earlier data what uh, it, the result might look like when uh, they re at the same point as when they restarted it. And we found that it was in line with uh, the trend before it was suspended. Uh, so this OAS narrative that this was impossible, um, and that's what generated this, 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 uh, these fraud allegations in the first place, we found that that uh, is likely not true. What I wanted to ask you was, if you could describe the um, what the Organization for American States is and the role that it was essentially playing in basically putting its finger on the scales and influencing what was happening with this election. Sure. Uh, the, the OAS is an uh, intergovernmental uh, uh, agency or, or body, and it, uh, in this case, uh, was... Uh, overseeing the election. It was an observer of the election, and and they also provide things like technical assistance to countries to conduct elections. Um, uh, but the 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 secretariat is um, has become very political uh, in the past few years, and has been political in the past. Um, and uh, you see that with um, them recognizing the Guaido government uh, or the so-called Guaido government of Venezuela. Um, and some other uh, decisions they made in the past. They overturned the Haitian elections in 2011. Um, so oftentimes they're much more than just an observer in uh, these types of situations. And, and that's exactly what happened uh, this time, too. They also they also receive like 60 percent of their funding from the U.S., don't they? Right. So in a lot of these organizations, uh, it's it's very similar dynamics as with the IMF or the World Bank. The U.S. is is the largest economy in, in the grouping, and they usually pay the most amount uh, as, in terms of funding. Uh, so the OES uh, is under considerable pressure from the United States, and the United States has a lot of leverage with the OES. Uh, and you you can you can see what um, the U.S. government says and does. Uh, they threaten to reduce the funding uh, with little notice to get their way. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, uh, back channel talking between uh, the State Department and uh, Luis Almagro, who's the Secretary General of the OAS. Uh, so they're very responsive to um, U.S. concerns. Uh, you know, I, I'm not clear what the U.S. role was in this election, um, but it is, uh, if you follow uh, the State Department, uh, they basically reinforced the OAS's decisions at every point in this election. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if there was uh, 
uh, some some talking between the two. One of the biggest issues or gripes that people who are critics of Evo Morales say, and you know, I some have agendas, some just seem to be lecturing Bolivia on how to run a democracy, which you know is an issue in and of itself. But uh, there was the fact that this was a fourth term that that Evo Morales was running for, and uh, but how do you, um, within the way the election unfolded, the the fact that he was cleared to run for a fourth term, that, that doesn't really bear upon whether the election was fraudulent or not, does it? To me, it's irrelevant because the opposition decided to participate in these elections and they agreed to abide by the results. Um, and... Uh, uh, they, by all accounts that I've seen, uh, nobody disputes that Morales uh, had uh, the plurality of votes and that, you know, even if his uh, margin was less than 10 percent, there would still be a, a second round election. Uh, all of that is gone now because the opposition quickly changed their narrative from we want an OAS audit uh, to uncover this fraud um, to we're not going to accept any audit. We want these elections uh, completely thrown out and we want Morales to step down. Uh, so it, 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 one thing was striking to me was that um, they originally had agreed uh, that, to uh, participate in the audit or at least endorse the audit. And uh, if, if you think you, you won the election, um, you would support that audit because it would, you know, verify what you what you think about your performance. Uh, but they didn't want this audit to happen. Evo Morales wanted this audit to happen. Um, and so to me, that's very suspicious. Uh, but also, uh, Almagro, who's the, the head of the OAS, uh, visited Bolivia in the summer, and he said uh, it is discriminatory not to let Evo Morales run for a fourth term. Uh, based on a court ruling, because other heads of state have done the same thing. And, um, you know, that's him right there endorsing the election. So uh, to me, it's just not relevant to to what's happening right now. Um, how about the people on the ground who were involved in leading this? There was this man, Luis Fernando Camacho. Is that how you say his name? Um who was like leading these so-called protests or riots. I mean, there was like 18 days while all this was taking place of basically muscle on the street, trying to put pressure like from the right on um, to, to force what essentially became a coup. What can you tell us about the people involved in that? Uh, it seems to me that, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I haven't been in researching this uh, on my own, but uh, just paying attention, they seem to be extremely right wing. They seem to be anti-indigenous. Uh, and um, they're also, uh, I know Camacho has some um, funding from the U.S. government in his past. Uh, so all that is, you know, very concerning to me. And it, it, he's taken center stage, not uh, Mesa is no longer at, on center stage. Uh, so... Uh, this way where the OAS and their decisions sort of interacted with what was happening in the streets and how the opposition was uh, coordinating all this is uh, um, they definitely were complementing each other. 
it's hard to, you know, there's, I don't know what the, the causation is uh, necessarily, um, but when the OAS uh, released their report, their audit report on Sunday, that was, that seemed to be the final thing that they needed in the streets to uh, legitimize this, this coup attempt or, or carry out this coup attempt. Yeah, there's, it's like, not only are they anti-Indigenous, there seems, they seem, there seems to be some sort of element of Christian fundamentalism, Um attached to this when Camacho like stormed uh, the uh, presidential palace, he like had a Bible in one hand and he was like rejecting the native religion. Um, so yeah, the right, I mean, it's like a nasty right wing opposition they've got there, like with mixed in with elements of fascism. And then, I mean, I, there was this whole piece in the gray zone. I'm sure you saw it um, like kind of documenting these people and their, their connections not only just to U.S. funded groups, but also to like Croatian fascists. It's insane. And just to recap for you know people who have been following this are probably well aware at this point, but we should just cover it that the military asked or, or, or urged and used, put their force behind their request to Morales to resign uh, and that it was General Williams Kaliman and um, that he basically came out and made this request to Morales. And that came after Evo had said that he would be open to um, another round in elections, right? And I wanted to have you react to uh, what President Donald Trump had to say about this role, the role of the military in the coup. Uh, After nearly 14 years and his recent attempt to override the Bolivian constitution and the will of the people, Morales' departure preserves democracy and paves the way for the Bolivian people to have their voices heard. The United States applauds the Bolivian people for demanding freedom and the Bolivian military for abiding by its oath to protect not just a single person, but Bolivia's constitution. These events send a strong signal to the illegitimate regimes in Venezuela and Nicaragua that democracy and the will of the people will always prevail. We are now one step closer to a completely democratic, prosperous and free Western Hemisphere. Yeah, so that's um, entirely revisionism. Uh, like I said, uh, Almagro endorsed uh, Morales' election run. And, uh, you know, you, you can't say either that uh, democracy is preserved if you have unelected generals uh, taking power and passing it unconstitutionally to a, a senator who has uh, no right to that power. Um, by the Bolivian constitution or any of the procedures that they need to follow. Um, but I, I do think it shows you that uh, how the U.S. Uh, takes advantage of these situations. Um, you know, nobody is disputing that Morales got the plurality of the votes in the election. They're disputing by how much he won. So to say that this is representative of the will of the Bolivian people is, is you know, that, that makes absolutely no sense. I was wondering if you had any reaction to the way in which the the U.S. press or the Western press has covered what's unfolded, given that you were involved in putting together a report that clearly documents the uh, alleged irregularities and unpacked the issues and tried to show that this isn't really what was claimed by the OAS, um, the narrative that was immediately picked up in the press was that there was electoral fraud and it's become the entire basis to not, it seems to me like calling it electoral fraud has become the justification 
to not say it's a coup in Bolivia. Right. They're, they're sort of hopping around from, oh, there were term limits and we're not happy with how they were removed to uh, there is electoral fraud to Morales was a strong man. Um, and none of it really holds up even to a basic scrutiny. Uh, but the, the media misrepresented the two counts that I was talking about, the quick count and the official count. And so uh, that was a big problem in, in uh, how the opposition gained a lot of uh, power in this situation. Uh, but also there's a trend here that um, I've noticed that you know, Donald Trump even alludes to in his statement is that you have these, these minor issues. This, this process was followed by the electoral authorities just like they did before. Uh, it was sort of adapted into this crisis by people who were trying to exploit it. And we see that around the world. We see that in Hong Kong with the extradition bill. This is an extradition bill that was uh, uh, designed to try to extradite a man who had murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan to Taiwan. You see that in Nicaragua with those protests, uh, I think, in 2018, uh, where uh, Ortega was trying to limit how much they had to cut social spending. Um, but the opposition who was forcing him to cut it uh, turned around and said, this guy is trying to cut your social spending. Um, and uh, you see that in Venezuela, too, with uh, the elections they had. They had... Uh, they have one of the best electoral systems in the world in Venezuela. Um, the opposition decided not to participate in the election meaningfully, uh, so they lost. In, in the United States, if, if the, the Republicans didn't participate in an election, or if the Democrats didn't participate in the election, I really doubt that the Republicans would uh, you know, hand over power to them. Um, so you have these situations where uh, these issues that are 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 clearly being misrepresented and, and sometimes they're very small issues and the United States and um, other actors blow them up into these, these huge stories about um, democracy and uh, uh, the will of the people. Um, but, you know, in this case, uh, we, we detail what the electoral authority did in previous elections and you can see uh, you know, they stopped the, the vote count at this percent because they had a press conference. Uh, they stopped it at this percent in this other election and had a press conference. So, you know, they did the same thing that this time and they didn't really respond immediately to what was happening because I think they were so confused at why the OAS, which had encouraged them to have elections these ways, basically turned on them. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. This does seem to be the sort of go-to um, strategy uh, for like the U.S. and its allies is to make an issue out of these really, really small details and blow them up in sort of like a lawfare kind of way. Um, and like obviously using it against left governments uh, in this case, like explicitly using it against left governments. Um, right. It, it only points one way. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is why I, I like Almagro's quote from this summer is because he says, uh, you know, uh, courts overturn laws all the time. And in this case, uh, uh, you know, Morales can run for a fourth term. Um, you know, he is one of his rare moments of, you know, plainly assessing the situation. These, these things happen in lots of countries. Um, but they only become problems uh, in countries that have leaders who are 
somewhere on the left. Yeah, it's been actually been really irritating to watch um, even like self-described progressives and leftists also make that like push that same Morales was wrong to try and run for another term. He was wrong to have the courts overturn the Constitution as though term limits. I mean, I personally am of the belief that there's nothing like uh, that's necessarily democratic about term limits. Like, I don't think that like getting rid of term limits is an anti-democratic measure at all. It's you're still having elections. Um, and a lot of countries right. around the world don't have term limits, <laughs> including European countries. Like there's plenty of them that don't have term limits, but it's not an issue except when it's happening in this place where the leader who keeps winning is a leftist. <laughs> I mean, it's right. as simple as that. I think somebody pointed out that uh, Angela Merkel has been in, in government as as the head of the uh, Germany government for 14 years. Yes. And, uh, you know, nobody cares about that. Uh, Someone responded but, to that. They were like, but she didn't have to overturn, like, the Constitution to do that. And it's like, oh, the courts did it. Like, the courts did it. And if I'm not mistaken, aren't um, judges elected? Right. So, yeah, that's it's uh, I had a few interesting conversations on Twitter where people were like, well, he packed the court with appointees. And I was like, well, these people, you know, maybe you maybe this. I'm not saying whether this was like something he desired or not, but uh, it, it's an interesting take when you say it's less democratic to elect judges than appoint them uh, like we do in the U.S., yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there's no there's no way you can explain the situation to people who uh, are using it for political purposes because they don't want to understand it. And, you know, you see that with people defending term limits, too. Uh, they're, you know, staking the ground on, on this this concept that is political. And then they're turning around and endorsing, uh, you know, overturning an election where the, you know, Morales clearly had a plurality of votes, and they're uh, endorsing uh, the senator who declared herself president. Um, the Juan nobody, Guaido of Bolivia. Right, and nobody disputes that Morales won the previous election. So his term is up in January 2020. There's no way that you can make a case that uh, his term was up before then. Um, but these and people have no problem with that. those kinds of violations of the Constitution. It's only... And these very specific ones, basically because they want to delegitimize Morales. Yeah, and it was just, it was so obvious, the bias, uh, if it wasn't already apparent, when the military, like, basically told him to, told him to go. Uh, and he resigned, and everybody was like, what well, was his decision? And the OAS said nothing, right? Like, did the OAS say anything about the military getting involved? Almagro had a statement. Um, I don't remember all of it, but he said that uh, um, if Evo Morales was concerned about democracy, he wouldn't have tried to, uh, you know, steal the election. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, right now they're they're full on in in uh, uh, justifying what's happened um, mm. because they're they're happy with the result. Uh, but it really it really. The entire situation really reveals sort of the emptiness of of liberal conceptions of uh, democracy um, mm -hmm. because they're not consistent and they're very political. And, and by liberal, I mean, you know, liberal as in conservative and liberals in the U.S. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting because of all the leaders that, like, in Latin America, I mean, especially the leftist leaders, like, Evo Morales really did play by those liberal rules. As much. He didn't purge anybody from the military, you know? He, like, worked within that, the, like, liberal framework, and he didn't do all the things that everybody in the, in the U.S. got mad at, like, for example, Hugo Chavez doing. Um, right, or even... They didn't, he didn't go as far as, uh, you know, what, what Cuba did. Cuba uh, was um, much clearer that they were establishing society based on their principles. And, you know, that's their choice. And that makes a lot of people in the U.S. very angry. Um, but Evo Morales played ball. He, uh, in face of, of winning an election, he allowed the OAS to audit it. The OAS did an audit that we're still looking at, but that looks very similar to their previous claims. And, and it's, you know, based on what I'm seeing now, it's not going to hold up to scrutiny. Uh, so he decided to basically work with them and they completely played him. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not sure the lesson from that, because these are or organizations that are very powerful. Um, but uh, certainly I think if you're a left government in Latin America, you're not going to want the OAS to observe your elections in the future. How about the economics of all of this? Uh, there's the resource nationalism aspect. I'm wondering if you have anything to say or speak to. There's been some attention to the lithium deposits that are in Bolivia and, and whether uh, Evo's decision initially to uh, reject uh, contract with, um, I believe, companies in the industry or maybe you have more details but but th but that this war over resources is really part of why we're seeing this coup unfold i think that's definitely uh a, something that underlies all of this uh he embarked on an economic program that uh was very successful that uh helped um the poorest people in the country but also helped uh middle income people um, and uh, he didn't follow the advice from uh, places like the IMF or the World Bank. He did the opposite. And, and that's sort of a thorn in the side of uh, um, people who want to endorse the kind of neoliberalism that is uh, throwing countries like Ecuador and uh, Chile into crisis. Um, so he definitely had a target on his back for that. Um, but uh, as far as the lithium is concerned, I think that that's probably uh, something that uh, played some kind of role. I know people were saying that uh, Tesla's stock went up uh, after the coup, but I think that was actually just them releasing their their uh, 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 quarter results. Um, but you know, that it, it also was they they had planned to work with the Chinese and. Um, uh, China is a really important partner to countries uh, in Latin America, Venezuela, Bolivia. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was it, it had a big role to play, but definitely it was in the background. Well, because we've always opposed any of these countries in the region when they want to nationalize their resources and not have them open to private investment. Uh, you can actually see in the cables that were disclosed by Chelsea Manning to WikiLeaks that there's this there's this attitude of against any 
any of these governments that believe that private investment equates to uh, U.S. imperialism. Right, and he took over uh, a lot of um, uh, gas interests and I think some mining interests. Um, he also uh, did land reform, um, and uh, I think 70% of Bolivian land was held by something like 400 people or 400 families uh, before the land reform. Um, so nationalizing it or, or you know, distributing uh, land in this case is something that... Uh, you know, these policies are, are really disliked in uh, the U.S., but also the elite in Bolivia, the elite in any country uh, really, really hates these policies. You know, another thing that isn't disputed, you say there's no dispute that he was ahead in this vote. There's no dispute that he very extremely reduced poverty within the nation of Bolivia and was able to lift up a lot of these people in the underclasses so that they had more access uh, to services for their basic needs and so that they were in much less dire conditions. And so I, I think as we wrap here, my question to you is what are the issues that you think we need to be following closely going forward? It's obviously very fluid and you know, we've, we, we have uh, a, a lot happening on the ground in Bolivia as we record this conversation on November 14th. But um, what, what are you, as, a, as someone involved in this research, focusing on? I think it's um, important to uh, listen to the MAS party, uh, which uh, Morales was the leader of, um, and see what their demands are. Uh, Morales already conceded in uh, face of the OAS audit to have new elections. Uh, and um, if new elections do happen, the mass party needs to be involved in them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's quite likely if they're free and fair elections that they'll win them because they have a lot of support. Uh, but um, I would I would be concerned about the senator who declared herself president and, and you know, was swiftly recognized by Brazil and the U.S., um, and the, uh, the fake, uh, Guaido government, uh, and, um, listen to people in the mass party to see what kind of strategy they want to have to, uh, basically confront that. Um, it's really hard to, uh, see how everything will play out. Um, but I'm also, uh, going to be looking at the OAS's role and how that is continuing to evolve. Is there a concern about violence against mass supporters on uh, the party members themselves? I mean, all of these uh, elected officials were were basically resigned because either their families were threatened or they were threatened. Um, so how can there actually be uh, legitimate elections next round, which I'm sure the OAS isn't going to be so obsessed with every little thing about? How can there actually be legitimate elections when the people currently in charge are so far extremely right and, and and basically promoting violence right yeah it's it's unclear to me how that is all going to work um but it's in a very important point that uh you know the people who are portraying these as resignations are, are lying um because if somebody is threatening your family you're under coercion uh you know these aren't you know free actions that you're making uh and um 
basically they're using evidence like that to legitimize the coup. Uh, but the Moss Party needs to have confidence that it can openly campaign and, and openly, you know, be in society uh, if new elections happen. Uh, but um, the opposition is going to fight, I think, very hard to exclude them from any sort of uh, upcoming elections. Well, thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show to talk to us about all of this. Uh, you, you're all, you yourself and everyone at the Center for Economic Policy and Research are doing exceptional work. Uh, and uh, I think we didn't really allude to it or even say it explicitly, so I'll do it now that you know, you're one of the best think tanks, if not the best think tank in D.C. because you're actually looking at what's happening in these countries um, without uh, trying to sanction the United States government's agenda every step of the way. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much, and hopefully we can have you uh, and your colleagues back on in the future for what I hope are more positive updates. That would be great. Thanks. All right, so we had some more that we wanted to get into with Bolivia, Evo Morales, and the coup that is in addition to the unfounded claims of election fraud, which have laid the groundwork and made it possible for people to think that this is all justified, what's happening. Uh, you, know, is, you and I have been talking. It's really alarming and disturbing who is rising up and who is taking over this country. Yeah, so I really, I really strongly recommend people go to the Gray Zone, uh, Max Blumenthal's website, and read an article that him and Ben Norton wrote. It's very detailed. They got it out so fast, and it's like a step-by-step documentation of the people behind this coup who were on the ground, and it's shocking. I mean, the the guy who led it, like, is like a fascist. He's like an anti-racist like fascist who thinks that indigenous culture and religion is satanic. Um, And he like stormed into uh, the presidential palace with a Bible and like declared it's like a place of God now. I mean, it's really scary shit. These people are not fucking around. And there's all these connections to like the families of like the basically Croatian and German Nazis. Cause like a lot of people after world war II, a lot of Nazis uh, fled to Latin America and I believe there was some connection to people who had actually worked for the U.S.'s Operation Condor, which used Nazis against communists mm-hmm. uh, during the Cold War uh, in Latin America. And uh, there's like a connection between the, these people and their children being involved in the right wing in Bolivia uh, and being involved in this coup. I mean, it's really, really shocking. And then the woman who just took over, who declared herself as a president, unelected, but she's recognized by the U.S., um, that claims to be supporting democracy has also like had all these tweets from her past, like from like, like three, four five years ago saying some really nasty shit that was like about, I never, you know, I, I indigenous calling indigenous people satanic. Yeah, go ahead. You can read it. Yeah. It's uh, I dream of a Bolivia free of satanic indigenous practices. The city is not for the Indian. They should go to the highlands or the desert. 
I mean, it's it's really disgusting the, with the things these people believe. And for two weeks, for 18 days, these people were rioting in the streets. You might remember they like they uh, kidnapped. They well, they were being called protesters, just simply protesters, but they were like right wing riots against Evo Morales that uh, like after the election took place that were um, doing things like kidnapping uh, one of the town, like one of Bolivia's uh, socialist mayors mm -hmm. from one town, a woman, and they like kidnapped her and dragged her through the street, poured red paint on her, forcibly cut her hair, uh, and were like threatening to kill her. Um, and uh, and I mean, it was basically like public torture. Uh, and they were still called protesters. And then at one point they actually... Uh, stormed the radio, uh, the state, like the state radio offices, and kicked out all of the media workers, uh, and tied one of them, one of the radio chiefs, uh, to the to a tree. Like, I mean, it was insane, and they were still being called protesters. How is this protest activity? This is just mob violence. Um, anyways, they were they were carrying out things like this after Morales left. They like ransacked his home. They began threatening the families of uh, elected officials that forced them to resign as well. And they were declaring, aha, they all resigned. Um, and it's a really scary situation now because you have all these indigenous people who are pro Morales, who support his party, and who are demanding he come back and be reinstalled. Uh, and they're like marching to various cities, but they're not armed. And the people they're marching against are armed and they're scary motherfuckers and they wanna kill indigenous people. So you could be looking at like a bloodbath scenario here. I mean, maybe I'm being alarmist. I don't think but so. But from what I'm seeing, it looks really scary. Like these people need protection. Yeah, I don't think and so. I, I, I will add one more thing. I'm not even worried about saying this. I don't care. Is people always talk about uh, people in the global north are like Chavez was authoritarian because he purged the military. This is why he purged the military because this is what happens to you when you're a leftist leader and you're, you're to the south of the US, is the right-wing elements in your country will be used to uh, remove you from power and sometimes even kill you. Like there was a point where I was really worried Morales was gonna be killed. They weren't letting him leave the country and it was a military coup, that's what happens. Yeah, yes. They usually end up deposing the leader yeah, in we're, a violent way. We're learning that uh, in, in the last couple of days here, um, and again, we're recording on November 14th. We're learning in the last few days that the it wasn't just, okay, we're going to let Evo Morales go to Mexico and get this asylum from Mexico, which he and others from the government were granted. Uh, it was that the Bolivian military initially weren't going to let Evo out of his country to go seek uh, to, to go get this asylum. And uh, eventually they were allowed to fly. And the story is that they stopped in Paraguay to refuel, but then after they had refueled the plane, I imagine they were probably sitting there and burning fuel, waiting for the clearance to take off. And that might have played some role in the fact that they couldn't go so far. But uh, they were denied the ability to fly over Bolivia and Ecuador. As you know, Ecuador is now ruled by um, Moreno, you know, this person we've talked about as selling out Julian Assange to uh, the United States government and also opening up his government to the IMF vultures and uh, his country to the IMF vultures after Rafael Correa 
had um, had fundamentally different policies that had challenged the United States government. And, and you know, of course, also in Ecuador, this, this is happening throughout the region. They're the rounding up of opposition figures to the right wing. And when I say opposition, I'm actually flipping it around. I'm meaning the left wing. But the people who were the dominant party, the left wing, the people who the who, who were elected, who they want to represent them, are now finding themselves being rounded up by these fascists in several countries throughout the Latin America region with the support yeah, Ra- of the U.S. government. Rafael, yeah, Rafael Correa had to, like, flee the country um, and then was facing possible extradition. Like, they wanted to arrest him and put him in jail. Um, and this is what they're doing. I mean, like, Lula was just released, finally, but they, they're using these, like, like we talked about in the interview, they're using these lawfare-style tactics against that's what they've been doing against the pink tide until eventually they win through patience um and it's a really really scary situation and it's been really disgusting honestly to watch this like attitude from you know the progressives in the u.s being like look i'm no fan of morales or morales was no angel but this is a coup and it's bad it's like shut up i don't care like first of all like it doesn't really get any better than Evo Morales if you're all about democracy. Uh, The guy, like, followed your stupid rules. He abided by the stupid international rules that only apply to brown people, like, literally, only ever apply to brown leftist leaders or brown leaders that, like, are in countries that want to forge a path of uh, independent of U.S. interests. He followed all those stupid rules, and you're still calling him authoritarian? Like, fuck off. It's just really irritating. And then also for these people in the global north who, like, when is the last time you went to an anti-war rally? Like, or a rally against a coup? Like, you're in the country that's causing the problems and all you can do is, like, lecture the socialist leader who just got overthrown? Like, shut up. The audacity of these people. I mean, even so, it's not like we really have any grounds to lecture other countries on how to run their democracy. (laughs) I mean, right. I mean, honestly, like we still have an electoral college that was built in. It's built upon slavery, basically. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, how can you go around telling other countries how they should organize their democracy when you have an electoral college that is like built on the vestiges of slavery, basically? It's just like it's like social. It's, it's like these like socialists, these like supposed democratic socialists in the U.S. Not all of them. I will say, like, it's been better than with Venezuela, where there's been, like, you know, pretty much consensus on anybody who's to the left a little bit that this was a coup and it was wrong. But that said, there's still this attitude of, like, chauvinism in American exceptionalism that really does exist on the democratic socialist level in the U.S., and it's really irritating. Well, and it's worth pointing out, too, that in the United States, you did have Elon Omar, you had Ocasio-Cortez, you had Bernie Sanders who said things that were condemning the events that had unfolded against Evo Morales, but they weren't really using his name. They weren't exactly showing solidarity. They were basically saying that historically, it's still kind of couched in this kind of passive language. Historically, the United States has been paternalistic and has not treated the Latin America region well. Uh, It's unspecific. And the... And, and it really stands in stark contrast to the way that Jeremy Corbyn, the Labor Party mm-hmm. leader, because this is what I have it in front of me. This is what he said in Solidarity. To see Evo Morales, who, along with a powerful movement, has brought so much social progress forced from office by the military, is appalling. 
I condemn this coup against the Bolivian people and stand with them for democracy, social justice, and independence. That is as clear-cut and forthright as you can be as someone who Mm -hmm. has influence and power in a country. And this is what's really frustrating is like AOC and Sanders, and Sanders does it too. Um, They always like to point to like Denmark and like all these like Scandinavian countries as like the perfect embodiment of the kind of democratic socialism they want. But those policies were also uh, put in place in Bolivia by Evo Morales. And as a result, he like did so much good like reducing poverty, um, like so dramatically. Uh, and this is something that's never praised. And then when he's overthrown, you can't even say his name. And what really bothered me about those statements from all three of them is I'm glad they made a statement at all. But the fact that it was, like you said, couched in this rhetoric of like, of like we, you know, we call for democratic elections in Bolivia without acknowledging there just were democratic elections. And that was overthrown. Like, that was overthrown, and you're not even saying it? Like, it's kind of, I mean, I guess I've become accustomed to the way they act about Venezuela, because the leadership in Venezuela has been so demonized that politically, um, it's too hard for them to say anything other than, Maduro's bad, but, you know? But with Bolivia and Evo Morales, you don't have that same level of demonization. You just don't. Evo Morales hasn't been given that demonization treatment where he's portrayed as a dictator. So, like, what's your excuse for not saying his name? Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I just, the mealy mouth, like, weak statements, it's just pathetic to me. I find it really pathetic. And people were like, oh, thank you so much for saying something. And I'm, it's not good enough for me. Sorry. In this case, it's not good enough. Well, the other thing is, I think that they're just so timid about this in the campaign because they feel like it's going to alienate his potential Latino support, or I don't know what calculations they might be well, making. Well, what's AOC? What's AOC's excuse? What's Ilhan Omar's excuse? No, like, no, I, they, I, they're not running. You know, no, but maybe you're right about Sanders, but what's their excuse? Like, I just don't. Well, I have a larger I, I point just, that I was wanted to make within oh, all sorry, that, where, sorry. Where, where I think that it really is something that you have to confront head on. You can't try to let it determine what you say about the U.S. foreign policy toward the Latin America region. Because um, as, as I've said multiple times now on this show, and as we talked about even last week with Max Blumenthal, I think you have to honestly and openly engage with the specific policies of these government administrations in each of these countries that are being targeted by the United States because there's a deliberate agenda by the U.S. government to undermine them because they want to protect neoliberalism, because they want Mm -hmm. to have friendly uh, Christian fundamentalist governments in the most extreme sense. That's So on the most extreme possible uh, end of the spectrum, they would like a Christian fundamentalist government that says you can have any resources you want and we are going to let any company from around the world have business here and we're going to keep Chinese companies out and or we're going to keep Russia companies out of here and they're not going to be part of the extraction. It's going to be all Western uh, companies from the United States and maybe parts of Europe that are going to be allowed into uh, exploit the resources and take advantage and destroy the lands of indigenous people. Um, and, and, and in response to that, you have governments that are setting up these programs to address poverty. Um, you have it with Ava Morales's government, they have all of these different programs that were supposed to 
lift them out of poverty, and that's what makes Evo Morales popular. And when the U.S. government comes in and, and supports a coup and destroys all of that and uses the rhetoric that is being used to justify, that same rhetoric can be used to undermine any efforts by the Bernie Sanders campaign to lift people up in the United States who need help who need assistance, who want to change the dynamics of power so that it's not rule, uh, rule by the 1% against the 99%. I mean, there, you can't separate the two. There is no wall between domestic and foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, like, I, these people are so scared of taking on imperialism um, that this is all we get. I, I don't know. Maybe they're, I don't know. Maybe they actually think this. I can't imagine they're this stupid. Privately, they've got to know what's going on. Well, I don't think so because you get someone like Naomi Klein who comes out oh, and, yeah. and, and says, I've spoken to... She says, I spoke to Bernie Sanders about the shock doctrine and the shock therapy, and he really cares about this stuff because he was at the University of Chicago and the Chicago boys were there and they were developing, and this is Milton Friedman's work, and this is... And it's really critical, and I don't think there's anything that isn't genuine about what Naomi is saying. But what I think they need to get beyond, and I say this from a good place, of someone who wants to see the Sanders campaign actually succeed because it's the only force in the United States right now that seems to have any left-wing ideology that can counter the destructive ideology of the Trump administration and the destructive ideology of neoliberalism among like the Clinton Democrats that are still raising hell and everything. You have to come out and say something. I don't know if there needs to be a speech that is just on all of this, but there needs to be some forum where Bernie Sanders can hash out all of these issues. If they're worried about baggage because like, he spoke favorably about Fidel Castro or they don't want to alienate supporters in Florida who are exiles in the communities. You know, the only way you can handle and manage that liability is by finding some safe space. I I mean, I'm I'm not, I'm not using that in the sense that like people think I'm using. I mean, find, find somebody who is an ally who supports you in the media and talk about all of this you know, someone like a Joe Rogan who will just let you free range, have a conversation about all these important issues and get it all out in the open in anticipation of what the media will say if you're showing solidarity with these governments. I believe that's like the best way to handle all of this. I agree. I agree. I don't know how we get there, though. Yeah, I really don't. Well, and I think the thing is that like they don't want to we've spent enough time on this and I want to bring up Medea Benjamin's. Uh, attempt the attempted arrest against Medea Benjamin before we end here, but it, it it just seems to me that like they also don't want to distract from the core of their message about Medicare for all, challenging the billionaire class, etc. But the billionaire class is trying to destroy these countries, <laughs> so it's like it's like it, to me it just fits into the message, and they just they just think it's somehow a distraction because it's the way we're hardwired in our politics. I mean, if you think of every single election, um, there's always been this sort of uh, view, this very um, contemptuous view of of us people, Rania, of us voters, that foreign policy should be left up to the minds of people who run Washington, D.C. And and the only thing that we are to give input into is like funding Social Security, funding Medicare. How should we address immigration? Things like that. Yes. So Medea Benjamin uh, was 
uh, almost arrested. The Capitol Police, uh, you know, first off, um, I incorrectly, as I was putting together my report on this story, uh, had thought it was the D.C. police, but instead it was actually the United States Capitol Police who handle security at Capitol Hill who came to her house, which seems kind of unusual to me because, I mean, what authority do they have to come to homes in Washington, D.C. to arrest people? Um, I wasn't aware that that was something that they could do. But uh, she went to, just to set this up, Medea Benjamin was at a press conference that was convened by uh, Debbie Washington Schultz, Democratic Congresswoman, and Republican Mario Diaz-Balart um, in support of the uh, the forces behind the coup in Venezuela. Um, they're calling this the bipartisan Venezuela Democracy Caucus that they're forming in Congress. And so Medea... How heard, cute. Yeah, Medea heard that this was happening. Uh, she, nothing, not much gets past her and the people of Code Pink when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, challenge, uh, when, when it comes to this kind of stuff. And so she was there and she, you know, she's really good at what she does. She managed to stand right next to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, even though they're all like gathered in this tight group. And, uh, <laughs> and, she, and, and there's video, the video is out there and it's very clear and so um, at some point, uh, there was an, uh, she was pulled by members of this right-wing opposition. Um, you can see in the video. Have you seen the video? She's being choked. I haven't, no. She's oh, my a, God. In this video, um, which was taken by the Spanish uh, arm of the Voice of America multimedia agency that, it tar- that targets Latin American countries, the, the U.S. Mm-hmm. government-funded, state-owned Voice of America. Their, right. Their Spanish um, uh, people were there and recorded this and captured Medea. There's a person that takes his arm and wraps it around Medea's neck as, and, and is pulling her away from this press conference. Jesus. And um, she's saying, you're choking me. She's begging uh, Diaz Balart, who is watching this happened to say something to them to let go of her so she isn't being choked anymore and she's begging she's begging for help and uh nobody says anything um and then at some point she disappears from the frame and and just you know she was obviously removed from the press conference by them uh but she was shaken up because she was choked um, and she leaves and she comes back to her home and finds that it is surrounded by Capitol Police very, very, you know, very quickly. They have mobilized that in less than an hour. This conference took place at 3 p.m. It's about 3.50. And she very smartly did a live stream of all of this to confront the police over what had happened. And uh, it turned out that because of how she was being pushed by uh, these right-wing opposition supporters that she had lost her balance. And you can see in the clip that she's falling into Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And Debbie, uh, I like how people have reacted, so I'm going to use their jargon. She reacts (laughs) like a fragile snowflake and just starts (laughs) wailing that she's being assaulted because a woman is falling on her. I mean, you've been, you've been in these situations before, Rania. Everyone's standing close to each other. If someone's moving, 
they're all going to brush up against each other. And then before you know it, you're falling on somebody else and you can't get your footing and it's a mess. So there's no assault, Debbie, like you're, you're, you're fine. And I actually, it's not even clear to me that she even knew, um, who was falling into her exactly until you don't, well, no, she must've, if she went after her, that's the thing is that well, you don't after, think it was after the motivated? fact, after the fact, uh, I okay. I'm, okay. I, I'm, it's not clear to me that she knew exactly, um, that this was Medea. I actually went back and looked to see if Medea had ever disrupted anything. Debbie Wasserman Schultz did. And, um, it's, it's actually possible that their paths have not crossed. I don't know that for sure, but, I think mm-hmm. one thing to figure out is if Debbie had any idea um, when this was unfolding. I mean, okay, she's standing right next to her with the banner, and she gave a statement, and she might know then that this is Medea Benjamin. I mean, Medea has a reputation on Capitol Hill, right? Like, people would know that w- what Code Pink people do. Um, but They know the, them. They know them. But at the sure. same time, when she was falling into her, I don't, I don't know if she recognized... Um, her just because of how she was being manhandled by these right-wing people um and in any case she's yelling that she's being assaulted so uh eventually Medea gets back up on her feet and is is I think someone from the right-wing opposition moved her out so that she couldn't be at the press conference anymore so she just stood on the outskirts and eventually went home and uh, when she arrived there, the police come up to her, the Capitol Police, and they say that uh, we have this allegation against you, uh, and we're here to talk to you about this. Uh, and they don't come out and say that she's under arrest wh- right away. Um, and then they mention to her that they're here because um, the Congresswoman, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, has said that you assaulted her. Which is crazy, right? Like, <laughs> no, it's insane. It's totally politically motivated, and the people. I mean, every Washerman Schultz is from a Florida district where there's a lot of Latinos, like right wing Latinos, and it was their idea. I bet. Well, like, like all these people in the caucus are mostly Florida representatives. Then, and also Debbie Washerman Schultz is an extremely annoying, obnoxious, unlikable, uh, terrible person. <laughs> who's only made it as far as she has in the Democratic Party because of her, of her ability to get rich people to give Democrats money. Yeah. So the one thing I want to emphasize here is that the Capitol Police came up to her and said that uh, uh, you know, they were going to go back over the footage. That, uh, that you know, They said you could be placed under arrest and or we're going to get a warrant for you. So they come, and they don't have a warrant for her arrest, so they can't do it. Unlike Max Blumenthal, we talked to Max um, last week, and they had a warrant to come into his house and arrest him. They don't have that for Medea Benjamin. And you know, she says that um, uh, you know she quickly gets out what happened at the press conference so people who are watching the stream can know that that she was standing by Debbie Wasserman Schultz and that these right-wing Venezuelans were dragging her around and they were the ones basically who were assaulting her and then that's why she fell into Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And, um, right. And so anyways, the police mention that they are going to, that, that they are now reviewing the footage to see exactly what happened. I mean, mm-hmm. just think about that in your head. Like you're there to arrest somebody, but you don't have any clue 
whether the thing that they, they yeah. are accused of doing actually took place. <laughs> yeah, you think that you would investigate that first before you go arresting someone? It's crazy. <laughs> so they're there at her home. There has to be evidence. Like, what? That means I can just say Kevin murdered me or tried to murder <laughs> me, and they're gonna go arrest you without any probable well, here, cause. We'd, li we'd like to ask you if you were involved in a murder. Well, well, no. Like the footage will clearly show that I didn't kill somebody. Well, hold on, <laughs> we're gonna check it right now. Let me. Let's do, right. It's like we're, let's do instant replay. It's like a sport. Like, why don't we go back over and see if like it actually took place. Um, right. And so, so yeah, they're going through this Capitol Hill footage to see if what took place took place. Cause you know, Capitol Hill has all these surveillance cameras all over. You, you can't miss what's happening. They were in this house triangle where Congress people can have their press conferences. And, um, and then a second officer comes up and says, we're re-interviewing the victims, the witnesses on the scene. We're trying to figure out exactly what happened. Okay. Do you have any questions? And it's like, oh my yeah, God. I have a lot of questions as to why you're at my fucking house trying to arrest me. When... That's going to be crazy. That's going to be crazy if they come back and do arrest her just to tie her up in legal issues. Like, yeah, because that might actually that might happen. Well, that might happen. That could be the point. So, uh, you know, just to wrap here, oh, she did say afterward that, um, you know, they eventually told her she was free to go. Oh, she asked them, are you investigating the people who assaulted me? Are you going to investigate uh -huh. the, the people there who were, you know, had me in a choke hold at one point, basically? And they're like, couldn't say anything specific, which is an important point for us to make, because as we talked about last week, um, they don't really care when you complain about the Venezuela opposition. No, because it's completely politically motivated. It's not actually about anyone being assaulted. And Medea gave uh, this journalist Ford Fisher, who's in D.C., uh, a really good quote. So I'm just going to read it here. I think this shows how closely the Democratic Party and the Republican Party work hand in glove with the Venezuela opposition, who are very aggressive. We saw what they did at the Venezuela embassy. They attack us. They spit on us. They hit us. And we can't get them arrested, even when we ask the police to do something. Yeah, the only thing you can do is, like, press charges. Like, yeah. that's it. She that's said it. That's all you can do, and you have to be rich to do that. And she said at the press conference that an activist actually had their phone snatched. And when... There was a complaint like, you know, hey, my phone, someone just took my phone. Someone stole my phone. Yeah, yeah. they didn't even give a shit at all about any of that. Uh, and of course, all of this, you know, it was not missed that all of this is happening after Max Blumenthal was arrested. You've got the embassy protectors who have their political cases. Um, I mean, it's just it's just so clear. No, that this is like a really draconian shit. And this just shows you that the U.S. is not a free country. It's I a free country for people who are like pro-capitalist and pro-imperialism. Yeah. They get all the freedoms that they want. The rest of us, on the other hand, will be attacked, assaulted, arrested, legally tied up, you know, in, in fighting and court battles. Like that's, that's, and that's, you know, that's all done for a reason. It's to discourage anyone from challenging this disgusting order. And Medea had mentioned that her partner, Ty Berry, had a case um, and was under threat for you know, a long time and was kind of afraid to move around in D.C. because he thought at any moment uh, he might, um, you know, find Be himself. Be arrested? Yeah, 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 I think so. And then they just dropped the, they, they dropped the case or whatever. Um, they probably decided it would be a PR nightmare or something. Yeah. And maybe that's what they decided with Medea as well. Well, maybe, I mean. Or I, maybe they maybe they haven't decided it yet, too. Like, it's, you don't know. I mean, there is something to be said about even if you can't, 
uh, succeed in putting somebody in jail, there's still something to be gained from keeping them tied up in court battles. Yeah. Well, and then also... And forcing them to have to pay the legal fees to deal with that. Right. And this becomes, uh, if, if you're, to use the prosecutor's legal term, this becomes uncharged misconduct, so to speak, that you can, you know, you saw like with Max, that's a five-month-old spurious allegation that they bring out mm -hmm. to then go raid his home when it would benefit the opposition. And, yeah. and I think, you know, the last point I'll make on this is this really shows how these uh, right wing, even fascist groups in these Latin American countries in particular, uh, it remains to be seen whether this expands uh, into, you know, exile groups from Middle Eastern countries or other parts of the world targeting leftists here in the United States specifically. Uh, but it really shows how these opposition supporters who live in the U.S. have found a way to deputize police agencies to do their bidding. I mean, they, I, I presume in some respect that one of these opposition figures told Debbie Wasserman Schultz that you should absolutely pursue this and go after Medea Benjamin. And she thought, hmm, yeah. I, you know, whatever you say, I'm whatever making a, say, sure. I, I'm making up this conspiracy theory in my head, but I just kind of feel like that, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was probably willing to just move on with her uh, day and, and keep doing her congressional work. But some right wing opposition supporter was probably like, you know, let's really make sure that this congresswoman does something with this. This is a huge opportunity to take out Medea, yeah. who is a voice who is constantly challenging us. And we could really, uh, we'd, there'd be a lot of advantage if Medea was put on trial for assaulting a congresswoman. That, that would be huge to discredit everything that she does on Capitol Hill. You know, every time that she showed up to anything afterward, you'd have uh, the... CNN reflexively mentioning that she was accused. She didn't even have to be convicted of it. Yeah. You say she was accused, accused in the of past assaulting. of assaulting. A white a lady, a white, a white woman, a, a white leftist lady accused of assaulting a poor Venezuelan. <laughs> Little old Medea. And I will say the one thing that I think saved Medea is because the Capitol Police were the ones that came to arrest her. Uh, because had it been D.C. police, they may not have known her in the same way that Capitol Police do because Capitol Police have frequently arrested her when she's yeah. disrupted these hearings on Capitol Hill, when she's been in other parts of the Capitol Hill building, challenging senators and representatives. And so, um, you know, she told them, like, you know me, I don't assault anyone. I'm a peaceful activist. I don't right. assault. And it's like, you can see in their faces to some extent that like they realized, oh, we do know you and we really doubt whether you actually would do this it's, right. it's it's kind of odd like to watch their face process this because i think they knew that like this wasn't going to work whereas like you can lie about max blumenthal because those people don't you know, like those police don't have much knowledge of max so they can make up shit like you're armed and dangerous right anyways but medea on the other hand they know yeah on that note um I think we've recorded a lot today. <laughs> yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground, and I, I expect that it'll be much worse next week because it always. I is. hope not. I hope not. I've been. I don't know if anybody who's listening can has had a similar experience, but I've been like so depressed about Bolivia. Like it's really been just like so sad to watch because you just get this really helpless feeling. 
Yeah. Like what? Like it just—it's just a reminder of like the U.S. can do whatever the fuck it wants, and nothing, and like you can't stop them. That's how it feels. But as the person who's expected to bring optimism to the show, I will as just, is usually the case. <laughs> I will just in thirty seconds or less mention because we didn't do anything on it that Amazon fucking lost and got its ass handed to them in Seattle when they tried to buy the city council. And Kasham Sawant did end up winning. So yes, there that is was, still that was some hope for beating the billionaire class and for beating the capitalists in this country. And until then, <laughs> we'll keep having episodes about it. But on that note, we are out of time. Uh, we'll be back next week. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye.